0: The presidential act of succession of 1886 put the Secretary of State third in line for the presidency. In 1901, the Secretary of State was John Hay, who had been one of Abraham Lincoln's two young private secretaries during the Civil War. He had known President Lincoln better than nearly anyone and had watched one of the greatest American presidencies unfold from his front row seat. He was responsible and stable and a good Republican, with years of public service and an insider's knowledge of how the White House worked, Interestingly enough, Hay had served three assassinated presidents, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley. If Teddy Roosevelt's midnight mad dash down the highest mountain in the Adirondacks to Buffalo upon the death of William McKinley went bad, John Hay would have been the perfect president for all those stodgy machine politicians who thought the young vice president was a madman. Now it was a race. There is a historical marker in the Adirondacks commemorating the spot where Theodore Roosevelt stopped to change horses on his way to take the oath of office as the 26th President of the United States. The Vice President had been informed by a series of telegrams carried to his mountaintop that President McKinley was dying. The second to last one said, absolutely no hope. The final telegram to reach him on September 13, 1901 said, the President appears to be dying and members of the cabinet think you should lose no time coming. Teddy was facing a 40-mile trek out of the mountains, and then nearly 400 miles to Buffalo. It would be best to wait until morning to set out. He held it together until midnight, then started hiking down the mountain. Patience was not one of his virtues. Teddy clambered down the mountain in the dark and got on a rickety buckboard wagon to go the rest of the 35-mile trip to the train station. The trail he hurtled down was later renamed the Roosevelt-Marcy Byway. His driver knew full well the new importance of his passenger and tried to be cautious, slowing down on the turns. Push ahead, Roosevelt ordered. If you're not afraid, I am not. The trip was so dangerous that it was very nearly named the Roosevelt Memorial Trail, and our history books would be telling the touching story of how Abraham Lincoln's right-hand man accidentally became president. But Teddy made it. When he got to the North Creek train station, there was a telegram from Secretary Hay informing Roosevelt that McKinley was dead. It was John Hay's first official act in the Roosevelt administration. Teddy took the oath of office in Buffalo at the Wilcox House, now known as the Theodore Roosevelt's inaugural National Historic Site, surrounded by members of the McKinley Cabinet. The Cabinet had wanted him to be sworn in a mile away at the Milburn House, in the hall below the room where McKinley's body lay. Roosevelt was asked if it wouldn't be better to do as the cabinet wished. He replied, no, it would be far worse. When asked if he was ready to take the oath, he replied, I will take the oath. And in this hour of deep and terrible national bereavement, I wish to state that it shall be my aim to continue, absolutely without variance, the policy of President McKinley for the peace and honor of our beloved country. McKinley's campaign manager and Ohio Senator Mark Hanna was not comforted. He said, that damn cowboy is president now. The United States had never seen a president like Theodore Roosevelt. Previous chief executives had held a spot of quiet reverence in the hearts of average Americans. The office of president had been designed specifically for George Washington, in part because of his quiet reserved dignity. His successors were mainly great and distant, more like religious deities than politicians. And they reposed in that quiet dignity, making eloquent statements and offering a regal public persona on the rare occasions they ventured out in public. Except for maybe Andrew Jackson, who had a mob come to the White House for his inauguration, shot at people in duels, and beat a man who tried to kill him nearly to death with his cane before being dragged away by Davy Crockett and some other congressmen. Except for Andy, who was all very proper and responsible. But Teddy Roosevelt made noise. Timing had always been his best friend, even down to the assassin's bullet that changed the trajectory of his life from dead-end second fiddle to the highest office in the land. He came to prominence at a time when the economy was booming. America was for the first time master of a burgeoning international empire, and communication and travel were at a peak. His exploits in Washington could be in the morning papers in San Francisco the next day. Farmers in remote parts of the country got the news, and the young president was often right there on the front page. Teddy had always seen political power as a great lever for change, and he was fearless. Despite his inaugural pledge to continue the policy of the McKinley administration, the veteran legislators in the Capitol felt uneasy. It is not so much what he has done as what he may do that fills them with anxiety. Teddy gave the Washington establishment the same sense of nervousness that he had every other political body he had belonged to. The source of their discomfort was Teddy's sure knowledge that he could appeal directly to the people and win them over. Once he had, no veteran senator could stand against him. He was a new intellectual force, a new sort of leader, against whom the older politicians are afraid to break a lance, lest he appeal to the country and take the country with him. He came to the White House with the same bounding energy of the nation in the new century. He was prone to take lunch guests on grueling treks through the woods and have them climb mountains and swim across freezing creeks, which he often did naked. Foreign governments began to send younger, stronger representatives who could keep up with the president in the hopes that diplomacy could be accomplished while briefly resting between gauntlets at Rock Creek. Teddy was the strangest creature the White House ever held, hanging from a cable over the Potomac to strengthen his wrists, practicing jujitsu, galloping at full speed through the woods on his horse, shooting at twigs with his revolver. He jumped over a chair in his secretary's office and had to leave a big pistol behind, when accepting an honorary degree at Harvard. Even when in repose, he kept one hand fisted, hinting at all the pent-up energy he struggled to contain. In this respect, he was a perfect match for America at the dawn of the 20th century. Had he just been an eccentric loony, his accidental succession to the White House and brief term in office would be a historical footnote. But he had big policy plans, a determination to make the country better for average Americans, a notion that the United States was destined to be a major world player and that the place for him in the newspapers was always the front page. And, as had been the case throughout his political career, the men who would oppose him or write him off continued to dismiss him as an impetuous publicity hound, a grinning, delighted child intent on his own amusement. Underestimating Teddy was always a mistake. He was a brilliant man, speed reading a book a day, Visitors to the White House were cautioned to expect that the president would have a book open on the desk to which he would turn if bored with the conversation. As an accomplished writer and historian, he thought deeply about what he read. And most of the time, he was a clever political operator. He presided over Cuban independence and the management of the Philippines, America's first overseas possession. He was granted the sole power to choose the placement of what became the Panama Canal, one of the first engineering marvels of the 20th century. His administration sued giant trusts for monopolizing industries, starting with J.P. Morgan's Northern Securities. America's grumpiest financier didn't understand why a lawsuit was necessary, wondering why Roosevelt didn't just, send your man to my man and they can fix it up. Morgan and Rockefeller and Carnegie, along with the richest men in the land, had completely bought William McKinley in 1896 and 1900 in order to keep the country out of the hands of the populist William Jennings Bryan. Their nightmares came true when they realized they no longer held the mortgage on the President of the United States. The business-centric Republican Party and the rich men who owned it didn't know what to do with a President who couldn't be bought. Teddy was now a trust buster, and the people loved him for it. He invited Booker T. Washington to have dinner with him at the White House, prompting Southern outrage at the idea of a black man sitting at the President's table as if he were his social equal. Senator Benjamin Tillman of South Carolina said that they would have to kill a thousand black men to get them to learn their places again, and he didn't call them black men when he said it. The president vocally opposed the practice of lynching in the South and pushed for a bill to make it a federal crime. He never stopped moving. While previous presidents only left Washington to go on vacation, Teddy accepted speaking engagements around the country, even one invitation that had been singed on a calfskin and mailed to the White House from Los Angeles. He was a powerful and forceful speaker who commanded attention, ending his speeches drenched in sweat and going back to his rooms to vomit and fall into bed, completely exhausted. One major lesson Teddy offered to future presidents was the crippling effect of caution. Whenever he played it safe, like with the tariff issue of 1902, he sounded weak and indecisive. Establishment Republicans opposed any interference with protective tariffs that they saw as a shield for domestic producers. His waffling on the issue was caused by his ambition to get the presidential nomination in his own right in 1904, and his fear of losing it to a safe candidate like McKinley's old boss, Senator Mark Hanna of Ohio. But playing it safe only guaranteed Hanna's nomination. But when he seized an issue in his oversized teeth, like the Pennsylvania coal strike of 1902, where millions of Americans faced the prospect of a winter without heat he won both the issue and the hearts and minds of the people. In short, when he acted boldly in the interests of the nation, he never failed. The president had been in a trolley accident while the violent Pennsylvania coal strike was going on, requiring two surgeries on his leg. He told Elihu Root, his secretary of war, that he wanted Root to succeed him if anything happened. Absent a vice president, John Hay was still next in line in the presidential green room, but Teddy said, if John Hay should be president... He would have nervous prostration within six weeks. Poor John Hay. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Teddy was in a wheelchair when he invited the opposing parties in the coal strike to come to Washington to meet with him. Old Guard Republicans, who held the 1904 nomination in their hands, urged him to stand pat and stay out of the strike and let it work itself out. They made it clear that the coming winter without coal was the greatest crisis facing the country and the voters, since the Civil War, but they refused to consider a role for the government in resolving it. Getting involved was a terminal risk for a president who wanted to win the office in his own right in two years. Teddy saw the situation for what it was. Unfortunately, the strength of my public position before the country is also its weakness. I am genuinely independent of the big moneyed men in all matters where I think the interests of the public are concerned, and probably I am the first president of recent times of whom this could truthfully be said but he was also, at my wit's end, how to proceed. He decided, typically, to dive in and invite the opposing parties, mine owners and railroad operators on the one hand, and the United Mine Workers Union, headed by John Mitchell on the other, to a meeting with him. When he put the idea before his cabinet, he chafed at those who advocated the Buchanan principle of striving to find some constitutional reason for inaction, a reference to President James Buchanan believing that the federal government lacked the authority to keep states from seceding and sitting on his hands while the country fell to pieces. This had to be one of those times where, as House Speaker Joseph Cannon famously said, Teddy's got no more use for the Constitution than a tomcat has for a marriage license. Or as Teddy himself more famously put it, the Constitution was made for the people, not the people for the Constitution. The coal strike was the biggest challenge of his political career. After the first day of meetings, he lamented, I have tried and failed. But the effect of him forcing the meeting brought nationwide approval, and he had the only tool that kept both sides coming back. He could send the army in to nationalize the mines and resume production. Cold Americans would get their coal, and all the parties to the coal strike, labor and management, would lose. If ever there was a time to speak softly and carry a big stick, this was it. Teddy quietly told General John Schofield to prepare to invade Pennsylvania, seize the mines, and resume coal production. At the same time, he sent Elihu Root to meet privately with J.P. Morgan, who had the money and power to force the coal mine owners and railroad operators to cooperate with a presidential solution. Morgan came to Washington with a proposal, which he could have announced himself, but instead placed the fruit of his power and labor before the young president. The solution was a coal strike commission, made up of a military engineer, a mining engineer, a judge, an expert in the coal business, and an eminent sociologist. The management side adamantly refused to have a representative of labor on the board, but Teddy had the power of appointing members. He selected a labor man as the eminent sociologist. As he had learned when Assistant Secretary of the Navy, calling a battleship a coastal defense vessel made it easier to get battleships built. Teddy never forgot the mixture of relief and amusement he felt when he thoroughly grasped the fact that the operators would rather have anarchy than Tweedledum, but if I called it Tweedledee, they would accept it with rapture. Roosevelt then appointed E.E. E. Clark, head of the Railway Conductors Union, as the eminent sociologist, a term that Teddy doubted Clark had ever previously heard. Once the commission was formed, the miners went back to work while the investigation proceeded, saving millions of Americans from an unheated winter. The president had established once and for all that government, in representation of the public, had the right and responsibility to get involved in issues that affected the national welfare. American businessmen chafed at this interference in free market forces. A railroad executive yelled at Owen Wister, Teddy's old friend from Harvard, Does your friend ever think? He certainly seems to act, Wister replied. The nation and the world agreed. The presidential nomination of 1904, and his own term as president, was Teddy's for the taking. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show on our Patreon page. There's lots of fun bonus content over there, like how to talk to your pets about history, early access to new episodes, and some incidents where fans of the show take me to task about train wrecks I haven't talked about, and some that I have. It's also a great way to keep the show going. $3 a month or so goes a long way toward keeping the train wrecks on the tracks, and your support means a lot. Go to patreon.com forward slash history's train wrecks, and thank you so much. If you have your own ideas about how to resolve a coal strike, or you think John Hay would have made a great president, you can Twitter to add history's train. You can Instagram, whatever that is, to history's train wrecks. If there's a historical train wreck you'd love to see on the tracks, join the history's train wrecks Facebook group. And as always, tell every history nerd you know about us. We definitely need to stick together. On our next episode, we finish out Theodore Roosevelt's inherited term of office with a bang, along with a new toy craze that swept the nation. And then, spoiler alert, watch as he wins the presidential election of 1904 and makes the mistake of his life on election night. Stay tuned for Teddy Roosevelt's Third Term, Part 3. Support comes from the I'm Not Allowed to Watch the News podcast. The host of the show is a holder of unpopular opinions on topics ranging from politics to health care to foreign policy to what foreign accent you should use when talking to your dog. When the news is on, he tends to rant. It scares the dogs. So his wife revoked his news watching privileges. So he went and started this podcast. That'll teach her. Go to to notallowedtowatchthenews.com and find out what all the fuss is about.